world is changing fast. New technologies are impacting how we think about products, services, and the way we live our lives. Nowhere is this trend more present than in financial services, where new business models and customer expectations are changing our conceptions about banking, finance, and the very nature of money. Welcome to ReBank, a visionary podcast about banking, fintech, and the future. The future of banking is here. Hello and welcome to ReBank. I'm your host, Will Beeson. Today we're joined by Lex Sokolin to discuss the ways in which COVID-19 is influencing consumer and business behavior and what changes are likely to be permanent. Digital is booming in areas where it hasn't before, both on the consumer and business sides. This genie will not be put back in the bottle. We're in the midst of a quantum leap forward in digital adoption. Fintechs that have long struggled for regulatory acceptance are punching through with solutions for SBA loan and stimulus check disbursement. The pivot toward a more mainstream role doesn't feel like a change that can be reversed. Apple and Google are building tools to enable us to give up even more privacy in the name of public health. Times of crisis reorder moral priorities. For all of our past episodes and to sign up to our newsletter, please visit bankingthefuture.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Please welcome Lex Sokolin. Lex Sokolin, welcome to ReBank. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yes, so the lockdown continues, uh, and I think this is week two in a row that we've managed to do this. I don't know where you are. I'm sitting in the back of a rental car because it's the only sound proof place I can find with a three-year-old running around. (laughs) I'm sure you have a much more professional setup. Oh, yeah. Uh, Something like sitting in the dark in a bathtub with the door closed. That makes sense on a number of levels. Um, So you put out another two amazing newsletters this week. Catch us up. What are you thinking about right now? So one of the things I, I know everybody is obsessed with with data and what the world looks like, um, and I'm no exception. So I've been looking more and more at the economics of a post-COVID world and what it looks like. And one of the um, sort of most eye-opening uh, pieces, data sets, came from the New York Times this week, uh, breaking down what's happened to consumer spending in different industries. So as you can expect, groceries are up, people are buying more groceries, um, something like 10, 20% more. But then of course, everything else is down from travel to shopping to transportation, uh, even to healthcare, you know, people are not going to the doctor, they, they want to avoid the, the office. Um, and then the, the interesting stuff starts to be around what are people doing more of? So you know, movie theater attendance is down 100%. Video gaming is up 80%. So streaming, gaming, um, uh, various digital entertainment, all that stuff is up while the, the brick and mortar stuff is down. Similar, if you look into the restaurant sector, the food sector, um, being in a physical space with people's gone, uh, delivery's up. And uh, delivery is the digital model for uh, for that industry. And then if you look at banking and you look at financial services, we're in a very similar place. 
people used to go to branches, and now those branches are all shuttered under quarantine. Um, and so that takes me to a McKinsey report that was recently put out um, about consumer banking experiences. And what I think is happening is that a mass amount of people are are being educated on how to use on online and mobile banking. And this seems weird, maybe to you and me, that you know, of course. Uh, you use your banking app every day or every other day. Uh, but it's something like over 50% of um, consumers you know, don't use a mobile banking app regularly. And so now we're in this place where it's Deliveroo and it's video games and it's streaming and it's Netflix and it's e-learning rather than the physical footprint. And it's the same thing in financial services. People are being taught to use uh, these bank apps and they're being forced to use these bank apps which might create a, a very different environment. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot of the same things you have. I, I think um, as we were hitting record, I got a push notification through from the, the New York Times, one of my favorite news, news outlets, one that's certainly ringing the alarm bell uh, constantly, I think rightly over uh, the coronavirus uh, issues and surely rightly over, over the economic issues. It's a bit of a downer, though. Um, 8.7% drop in uh, U.S. retail sales in March, which is just a staggering number. And, and it's, I mean, not, not surprising uh, for all of us who are living through it. I think you touched on the, the consumer side of the equation, the, you know, the 50% of people that hadn't been using mobile banking and presumably need to uh, do something around their their money uh, while while in lockdown, and maybe it's the internet. Maybe it ends up being an app. Even if if this experience pushes, you know, one, two, five, ten percent uh, of that previously non digital group to try digital. Uh, I mean, it fundamentally in in absolute terms, like moves moves the needle in in digital, and it just continues to push the world in that direction. Um, and that's just the consumer side. I think as, as important, uh, maybe more importantly here is the business side. So if you're an international air carrier right now, you, you just, you can't operate call centers or contact centers the way that you used to, whether it's telephone call center or some other sort of more, more digital focused contact center, you just can't have all of your agents together the way that they you know, would have been two months ago. And you're probably not set up for distributed customer support. So you're forced now, and you find yourself relatively flat-footed, you're forced to look for digital solutions, right? Like, how do you quickly bring enough, I don't know, digital ca capacity online? How do you improve your website? How do you uh, make it easier for customers to self-serve around all these problems? And guaranteed, coming out of this businesses globally like biz, big business and medium-sized business and small businesses will be thinking differently about the role of of digital and technology and their business models uh and and as much as anything i think they'll be driving this this continued acceleration toward toward digital i think we're seeing it in fintech also uh, and we can dive into some specific examples one thing comes to mind on that you know, so um, installing what might have been seen as a little bit frivolous 
um, in the last three to four years, like installing a chat bot on your website that can use some sort of conversational artificial intelligence to service customers. Like it's a nice to have, it's a nice feature. Um, whether it's powered by a company like Casisto or whether that's an intercom chatbot, there's lots of options. That's not a nice to have anymore. You're just going to need to scale way up on your automation for customer service. Another point on the same idea is that um, you know India is at the very beginning of the COVID curve, and you know there has not been um, an explosion of cases in the same way that we've seen certainly in the West. Um, but it's a very populous country, and um, there are lots of challenges there with people living closely together. Um, and it's also where all of Wall Street's back office is. So if you're thinking about who does the spreadsheets for investment bankers, who takes you know who takes the service calls for uh, customer service, who does all the analytics, um, all of that is going to be turned off and shut down. I think over the next few months. So I think. Um, for sure, not only is it automation, but it's also rethinking, you know, outsourcing and what your model is for uh, these core functions. That point about outsourcing to to other countries uh, and India specifically, I, mean, I think they've been on uh, an ex- a severe form of lockdown for the past, you know, at least week now, maybe longer. Uh, so, you know, the, those contacts and as we were talking about for big brands, uh, you mentioned back office for Wall Street, like. Yeah, fine. Maybe some of that is in the U.S., but a large majority of that is is offshored. And unlike you and me, you in your bathtub and me in the the back of the rental car, a, a lot of those individuals, you know, who, who are staffing those contact centers in other parts of the world, maybe don't have like the same broadband internet connectivity that uh, that we're tapping into right now to have this conversation. Uh, and we, we kind of take for granted that, okay, fine, work from home, remote working, distributed working. Yeah, it's great for for white collar jobs. Um, but a, a lot of uh, the, the real back end, you know, heavy lifting parts of, of all these businesses, which may have a shiny, seemingly digital interface now, just aren't connected uh, in, in the same way that, um, huh. that a lot of us are in, in the West. Yeah, that gets you to this whole thing of like the hybrid advisor, right? And how do you combine technology with the with the human being? And um, technology maximalism might be might be a fruitful avenue um, given where we are. You know, so I want to switch direction a little bit and bring up um, some of these House of Card numbers. We we started talking about the economic. Um, statistics, the macroeconomic statistics that are now emerging. And of course, you know, GDP is is revised down something like 6% for the developed world by IMF. So there's a large tangible hit now that's going to be uh, on the books. But I think about the sequence. So where are we in the sequence? Uh, there's something like 16 million unemployed people now uh, in the US uh, in an incredibly rapid way really un- unprecedented speed with which that happened. The chart is ridiculous. It's just flat and, and then vertical. Um, the follow-on from that is um, all the markets going to cash. So you, you see a lot of outflows from uh, big funds, fixed income as people start printing money. Um, but if you kind of go back to tracing uh, the knock-on effects, 
you know, consumer demand's down because of unemployment. The small businesses are all shut down um, and therefore can't pay their own uh, liabilities. And so the next set of numbers is things like rent uh, and mortgage payments. And so in the U- this is a number from last last week, I believe. In the U.S., mortgage forbearance, which is when you defer payments on your mortgage, went from 0.25%, so from 25 basis points of, of all, to 266 basis points, 2.5% just in the last two weeks. It's a 10x increase, a thousand percent week over week increase that has come out of unemployment and people saying we can't pay our mortgage. And so two and a half percent is where it is now. If your unemployment's at 10 or 20 percent, you know, I don't see why we're not going to see that hit the US, the asset class as well. And then if you look at the UK, uh, where I am, um, you're seeing the exact same metrics. So uh, lenders have been asked to uh, forgive payments, essentially, have a payment holiday. Um, and so you see really similar numbers, uh, which is pretty mind-blowing. 1.2 million people uh, over the last three weeks took a payment holiday from paying their mortgage. And so that's that's a 3x increase in the UK of people who are saying, um, I can't pay this. So what do you make of this? I mean, th- this to me seems like it's rolling through our asset classes in a really fundamental way. Yeah. So, so what what do I make of this stuff? It's um, it's real. It's just starting. It's going to have lasting impact. And and I think um, you know, the optimistic uh, among us who early on thought that maybe this was a this was going to be short term impact and we would quickly recover. I, I think that's very very clearly not true. So okay, we we've already talked about what this means for kind of like business models and the way that people are accessing goods and services going forward. But from the standpoint of actually addressing these specific data points and, and the current situation, I think we, you know, we, we have to see like real action from either lenders who, who have extended mortgages to, to people who can no longer make payments, credit card issuers, all sorts of financial service providers. We've seen the government very clearly step in uh, in the U.S. and in other countries as well, to try to backstop some of this. One of the glaring points of friction in all this is is how do you how do you actually get this support uh, to people quickly, like qu- quickly enough to actually address uh, these problems before they get worse? And I think we've seen some fintech starting to to step up here, the PayPal's, the Intuits, the Squares of the world uh, helping disperse SBA loans, Square, and I think Venmo, and maybe PayPal also looking to provide faster ways for retail users to get stimulus checks uh, via their apps, as opposed to waiting for physical checks to be delivered. Plaid, and I think a handful of other fintechs is reading about uh, Mercury, a business bank who's been on the podcast before, uh, looking to effectively help small businesses provide the data that they need in order to qualify for for these sorts of SBA loans. You mentioned central bank cryptocurrencies potentially as effectively ways of building or strengthening these channels between government and end users that need to be supported here. The crisis is making our 
assumptions about the strict regulation dissolve. So seeing PayPal and Intuit um, and Square becoming non-bank lenders of government capital to small business, after the years they have spent trying to get some sort of Utah Industrial Loan Corporation um, license or some sort of fintech OCC charter, right? Just trying to get that ability to actually do the work. And all of a sudden, in a moment of crisis, um, they're able to get through and provide people credit while not being banks. I think that's a real moment of the levy breaking. And uh, some of these, I mean, they could be seen as shortcuts or they could be seen as innovative solutions. Um, but once you get people and businesses addicted to working with much better interfaces and user experiences and with these fintech brands, I don't see how you take it back. I just, I don't see how um, you don't have this digital first uh, mobile app is my lender type of world uh, even after the crisis is over. So to me, that's a really important development. It's interesting. I think it's, I think it's another side of the same point you were talking about before basically this time of crisis this time of dislocation is a is a time in which solutions that weren't possible uh before punch through and once they punch through you don't return to the way things were before so either it's digital on the on the consumer and business model standpoint uh, maybe it's uh, fintech access to you know what were traditionally highly protected incumbent institutional positions within uh, the financial services market, and and the other piece too, which which I think um, this is all bringing to light, is this kind of sacred sense of privacy and data that's been such an important conversation uh, in in the West over the past number of years. Anti Google, Facebook type backlash. Yet in China and uh, in other parts of Asia, they were able able to quickly quash the coronavirus outbreak by contact tracing based on data, personal data that they had about individuals or could get about individuals that in, in the West isn't available. And Google and Apple, I think this week announced that both companies would be working to build, call it contact tracing functionality into first apps on their uh, iOS and Android platforms, and then the actual operating systems. And had this concept been floated six months ago, hey, we're going to build into the operating system the ability to track everywhere you go and via Bluetooth connectivity, everyone that you interact with, that just has 1984, <laughs> you know, Brave New World written all over it. Yeah. And it would be the end of forays from both of those companies in, into this sort of space. Um, not so in the midst of a, a crisis like this. What's going to happen? How is this going to play out once coronavirus is over? Like, is this a part of the new normal? Are we rethinking the importance uh, of safety and security over privacy? Or is this something that's opportunistic to fight this current situation, but that doesn't fundamentally change how we prioritize values going forward? So this is a, a deep socio-political morass <laughs> of a question um you know and i think it leads you into the sort of you can talk about human nature and you can say that in times of uh crisis and fear is when you need strong leadership and that's also when 
you know, authoritarianism and surveillance and control becomes the the strongest. Um, at the same time, you know, I I would love to volunteer. Please, please contact trace me. I want to know who I've met and if I've met anybody with a virus. I would like to know if I've had it. I would pay to get tested, and I can't do that. Let alone know everybody's I, I've I've come across. So, like, this is a feature I would love to have in the moment. And in part, it's because of a fear that I have, but I'm, I'm willing to give away quite large freedoms in order to make that, to make that trade off. Like I don't value my data and privacy enough in the same way that I would give it to Facebook to get pictures of friends. I would give it to Apple to make sure that I'm okay or that my family is okay. And perhaps in the aggregate with lots of individuals making these these sacrifices and choices in the aggregate, something really important has, has been negotiated away. That's really hard to get back. And I guess the, the other thing is it's difficult not to be tone deaf about this question because, you know, it's a lot of people on, on social media, the Twitterati talking about like our sacred rights while we um, sit in fairly controlled environments and get our deliveroo Whereas there are people who are legitimately hurting and sick and workers in healthcare who are in duress and, and doing really difficult things. So I don't want it to come off as tone deaf, but there's definitely part of the narrative that's focused on, you know, how do we, how do we not give away too much, uh, even though we do need to give away some. I thought you were going to talk about the, the irony of debating the importance of our civil liberties while we're all effectively sitting on government-imposed house arrest. <laughs> We're volunteering to be a house arrest. Yeah, yeah. So part of me wonders why we shouldn't just lean into this giving up our data piece. I mean, if it would potentially put an end to this crippling pandemic, and at the end of the day, we've been giving up our data for the past 15 years. Sure, I suppose you could point to certain political movements or sitting leaders and say that was what we were afraid of from the beginning and it's happened is there a better solution to i don't know this like a- a- apple google you know data problem uh or, or do we just like lean into it because the worst case is that we all die in a global pandemic <laughs> i appreciate the softball and uh and the framing um so of course, I think we should be practical and contribute as much as possible uh, towards the health of our community. I do think that it's there is an opportunity to rethink how we share our data, who owns it, and where it sits. And so there are a number of initiatives um, that use public blockchains, uh, in particular Ethereum, uh, that are thinking about how to do contact tracing without compromising people's identity um, and how to attach uh, their digital identity and their health status in uh, an anonymized way uh, to a shared network. You know, so one of, the, one of the fears is that if you end up giving your medical history uh, into an app that sits on iOS um, and that data is backed up, or if you are um, sending that data to Google, which is permanently recorded, that somehow, somewhere, that's going to go into an Amazon or a JP Morgan or a Goldman Sachs partnership, and it will affect your financial services. Uh, there is the other way, which is 
let us have a public utility for data storage and for information syncing. And uh, that public utility already exists in the form of uh, things like the Ethereum chain. Now, is it is it perfect? Is it massively performant? No. Uh, is it uh, exactly what we need today in every single facet? Of course not. Uh, but I think using the crisis as an opportunity to test out new systems uh, is really important. And uh, certainly, you know, trying to run an analog uh, program uh, in parallel with, um, you know, the the more fast forward large tech initiatives uh, could be really fruitful because you could use the you could use the crisis as a way to set the groundwork for something that you know creates a better world down the line excellent lex sokolin thank you very much for joining us today happy to be here talk to you soon thanks for tuning in to rebank if you like today's show reach out Follow us on Twitter at Rebank Podcast and join the conversation. For more on banking, fintech, and the future, check out our regular content at www.bankingthefuture.com.